Good evening. Thank you all for joining us here on somewhat beleaguered Ngunnawal country for this evening's event, which we are pleased to be hosting in collaboration with Manning Clark House. My name is Alison Dellett and I'm the Assistant Director General of Collaboration here at the Library, which makes me responsible for Trove and the Library's data sharing programs. I also chair the Reconciliation Action Plan Committee at the Library. Whether you are here with us in the theatre or joining us online tonight, I'd like to welcome you to the National Library of Australia. We were approached by Manning Clark House last year to host this event because even before they had started promoting it, they anticipated the very strong response that we've had with so many people eager to hear about this important research and we have been sold out tonight. We are so glad to provide a space for this discussion, both here in the theatre and, of course, online through our live streaming. Manning Clark House is an organisation that shares many of our visions. They're an organisation that aims to promote and encourage vigorous discussion and debate on issues of public and academic importance. And they do an extraordinary job of it. Past speakers have included Chris Ullman, Jermaine Greer, Barry Jones, the Honourable Paul Keating, and Sir Gustav Nossel, just to name a few. But before we begin this evening, I would like to invite our own eminent, Tyrone Bell, to welcome us to his country. Please join me. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Tyrone Bell. I'm a descendant of the Nunawal people, and it's my privilege this evening to welcome you to the country of the Nunawal people. To begin with, I would like to let you know that traditional Aboriginal law requires any visitors to the country being made welcome. This customary tradition has been passed on by all our generations. This ritual forms a part of our belief system. Its purpose is for visitors to acknowledge whose country it is and then in turn being acknowledged as visitors and made welcome. This welcome custom has happened for thousands of years and we use it as a protection for country against bad spirits. The country in which you stand today is that of the Nunawal people. Being a Nunawal traditional custodian, it gives me pleasure to invite you onto the country of my people. Dawanuna, Dawanunawal, Yulamundi, Kambara, Kendalan, Wangaralidjinyin, Marin, Balan, Dindi. In the language of my people means this is Nunawal country. Welcome to our meeting place. Please enjoy. We acknowledge and pay our respects to the elders past and present. We call country the mother because as a mother cares for her children, so does the land cares for us. This is why Aboriginal people have such close ties with the land. On behalf of myself and my people, I send a warm welcome to everyone here. I'm proud to be Aboriginal and one of the traditional carers of this land. I want you to feel welcome while on our country. Firstly, I would like to acknowledge those that come to this area for the first time and warmly welcome you. For those that have been here before, welcome back. And of course, those that live here, please continue to enjoy. We want you to feel welcome while visiting Nunawal country and ask that you respect the land that we have done for 60,000 years plus. So in keeping with our Nunawal tradition and in the true spirit of friendship and reconciliation, treat everyone and everything with dignity and respect. And by doing so, it is our belief that your spirit will be harmonised with your stay on Nunawal country. It is our belief that our ancestors will then in turn bless your stay on our spiritual land. May the spirit of the same remain with you today, tomorrow and always. Once again, on behalf of the Nunawal people, I welcome you to our traditional country. Jan Yimaba Noyan. Thank you and uh, goodbye. Thank you, Tyra, for your always generous welcome. I was really keen to introduce tonight's event because I have admired this research work that we are about to hear about for some time. The work manages both to be innovative and a long time coming. It uses modern techniques to retell us what Aboriginal Australians have been telling us for a very long time. It is, in this and other direct connections, kin to Trove, which is also concerned with the use of new technologies to facilitate the telling of some of our earliest and most important stories. Here at the National Library, we believe in the power of stories, history, truth, and knowledge. And we believe that how we understand our history will inform our future. 
When in the course of my work I'm called upon to try to explain the impact that historical data work can have, the work of Professor Ryan, her team and the communities who have assisted her is foremost in my mind. As a nation, we cannot understand who we are without understanding how we got here. And essential to this journey is our location in place and in country. The map that you have on the screen shows us the history of our neighbourhoods, the history of our towns, the history of our continent, and through this, our nation. This shared understanding of our history is a prerequisite to moving towards a better future in the spirit of reconciliation. And on the 12th anniversary of the Prime Minister's apology to the stolen generations, it is worth reflecting on the distance and the difficulties of that journey. I'm sure you will all realise the seriousness of what the Professor Ryan will be speaking about today, but I'd like to remind you that some will find the content of this talk confronting and distressing, and also that it might contain references to and depictions of Aboriginal people who have passed. As Professor Ryan and her team state on their website, this research is not a conclusion, but a beginning. So without further ado, let us begin. I will now hand over to the President of Manning Clark House, Mr Sebastian Clark, to say a few words. Please welcome I would like to thank uh, Tyrone for his wonderful welcome. Thank you. And on behalf of Manning Clark House, I acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of this land on which we are meeting this evening and extend disrespect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders peoples in, peoples in attendance today. Manning Clark House is delighted to be jointly hosting Professor Ryan's talk with the National Library of Australia. We thank the Library, Alison Dellett, Assistant Director General of the Library's Collaboration Branch and library event staff for their considerable efforts in organising and making possible this important event. Professor Lyndall Ryan is a leading academic on Aboriginal Australian and feminist history. She is the Foundation Professor of Australian Studies and of the Study of Violence Centre at University of Newcastle. She is well known for her commitment to identifying new forms of evidence about the past. In particular, Professor Ryan has provided evidence in an interactive map of Australian colonial frontier massacres from 1788 to 1930. She intends continuing her research beyond that date. Her project recently won the New South Wales Premier's Award for Digital History and a Walkley Award for reporting on Indigenous Affairs. Earlier this year, Professor Ryan was awarded an AM for services to Australian historical research. Manning Clark House and Manning Clark are very grateful to Professor Ryan for agreeing to provide this talk to demonstrate her interactive map which provides evidence of frontier war massacres of our indigenous peoples and nations. Thank you, Lyndall. You can join the microphone to your mouth. <laughs> Hello, everyone. I'm very pleased to be here. I'd like to thank Tyrone for your wonderful welcome to country and I intend to pay my respects to um, the custodians, past, present and future. In my talk tonight I want to give a, a little bit of a historical background to the appearance of this digital map. Uh, we're in the third stage of the map. Uh, there's one more stage to complete uh, which will happen if everything goes according to plan by the end of 2020. I then want to give you some, um, show you how the map works. A number of people have said they've tried and failed. Well, <clears throat> they won't fail anymore after I've given you a couple of little ideas. And to give you a sense of where we think the map, uh, the impact the map would, we, uh, that the research team would like the map to have uh, in the future. It is very much a truth-telling project 
and already we've had more than a thousand people have contacted us on the contact page. Of those 1,000 people, about five have made negative comments. So it's been an incredibly positive response. People want to know. Uh, they love the map because they can see a lot of the evidence for themselves. And before I properly begin, I would like to say that without Trove, and here we are in the homeland, the heart of Trove, here in the National Library, my research team have said, please acknowledge the importance of Trove. Without Trove, this project could not have begun. So it is so important. Thank you. Particularly when you live in the regions in Australia and people can't get to the big cities, they can't get to Canberra very often, and to be able to sit at your desk and click onto Trove and get the colonial newspapers and many of the other important references that are becoming digitised over time. It means that important national projects can get underway and I'd like to hope that this digital map project is one of the most important to emerge to date. It's been such a privilege to use Trove and to, and I just hope it continues to get more funding and that we can get more stuff up there because this is the way in which Australians are really beginning to understand their history. It is accessible to everybody. It's not just to academic historians like myself. So let me begin with a little bit of background. The map, uh, uh, stage one of the map was published in July 2017 uh, with, and it had then about 150 sites on the map in Eastern Australia. When I began the project in 2014, uh, there were a number of other maps, massacre maps, around in Australia. Most of them had appeared uh, in, uh, in the aftermath of the bicentenary in 1988. In that year, the first national book of uh, frontier massacres appeared by Bruce Elder called Blood on the Wattle. And it was Bruce who drew our attention to the fact that there had been uh, frontier massacres. And in his book, he listed about 70 massacres uh, with important stories about most of them. But Bruce didn't have... Any, he didn't publish the evidence. He had uh, a good bibliography, but he didn't relate the bibliography to any of the particular incidents that he talked to. And I have to say, I'm guilty of writing a really scurrilous review of that book, saying, don't think academic historians are going to use this book in their teaching because it doesn't have footnotes and there are no proper references. How do, how do we know that Bruce did not make up these stories? He's an incredibly nice guy. I feel so embarrassed now that I did that. But the book had an enormous impact on the general reader. And over the next decade, which I call the reconciliation decade, a number of wall maps appeared uh, with dots on them uh, and giving a list, you know, 1 to 20 or uh, in particular regions. There were some wall maps of the whole of Australia that appeared. I think the National Library has copies of every one of them. Uh, and the most recent one, I think, was published in 1999, uh, which listed a whole range of massacres and other violent incidents on the frontier. But it too didn't have the sources listed or the evidence. And of course the year 2000 was the year that the history wars broke out uh, in the lead up to the Olympic Games when Keith Winchuttle published a series of articles in the journal Quadrant where he queried a small number of massacres, perhaps some of the better known ones, like Forest River in Western Australia, in 1926, which led to a Royal Commission, which was inconclusive about the extent of the massacres and how many people were killed. He also queried the massacre at a place we now call Waterloo Creek uh, that took place in 1838, 
where it was estimated in a, an inquiry that about 30 Aboriginal people had been slaughtered. And he said that it was only three and that the whole operation was what he called a legitimate police operation. I don't know how legitimate it is to go out and kill a number of Aboriginal people in, in response or retaliation to perhaps the alleged killing of one colonist. So it sort of got this, you know, it raised a lot of questions and it was really about the question of evidence. And then two years later, at the end of 2002, Keith published his book on Tasmania called The Fabrication of Aboriginal History, uh, Van Diemen's Land, 1803 to 1847. And in that, he attacked a number of historians who'd written about Tasmania, myself, uh, Henry Reynolds and a, a raft uh, of other uh, historians in which he said that we had invented or fabricated massacres. I was very bemused by that because in that particular edition of my um, second edition of the Aboriginal Tasmanians, I think I'd mentioned three incidents of massacre. One at Risdon Cove, which I'll come back to in a moment. Uh, another one on the northwest coast at Cape Grim, and another one uh, in central Tasmania that I'll come back to as well. But Keith got the, gave the reader the impression that I'd talked about 20 or 30 incidents of massacre and that I didn't have enough evidence. It is very hard to engage in the public realm when someone accuses you of being a fabricator uh, in that way. So although I did engage, I would not advise you to do so if you become uh, the target of a media witch hunt. Don't bother. Go back, just go for a holiday. Uh, and then when the dust settles, think about how you're going to do it. And uh, so over time, uh, I, I decide, I took a trip to America and I realised that there was a big debate going on in the United States about uh, massacres of Native American people. And then I also realised that there were a number of European scholars who were scratching their heads about the massacre at Srebrenica in Bosnia in 1995. That was a massacre that literally took place in plain sight, but nobody saw it. It was in a little town in Bosnia. There were UN peacekeepers present. Uh, they were, I think, Danish or Dutch troops uh, stationed down one end of the village, and down the other end of the village, several hundred Bosnians were being slaughtered by the Serbian army. It took six weeks for information about that massacre to come out into the public domain. And it's only in the last couple of years, I think in 2017, that the leader of that massacre was finally uh, convicted at the International Court of Justice at The Hague. And that massacre astonished a, a whole raft of European scholars on the grounds that they could, you know, Europe was the most civilised place in the world. And since the end of World War II, there had been no massacres. They would never happen again. So I think these European scholars felt that their reputation as leading humanitarians, global humanitarians, that their reputation had been besmirched. And so they began to do a lot of research about massacre. Like most of us, I think they thought that a massacre was a, a rush of blood to the head a completely irrational act. Not unlike what had happened at Port Arthur in 1996 when Martin Bryant just appeared in the middle of the afternoon with all of these tourists and just went berserk with, with, um, with an automatic rifle. Not unlike what happened perhaps last weekend in Thailand where a young army officer uh, shot his commanding officer and then went on a rampage in the town. There's that sense that it's beyond, it's an irrational act. It's beyond scholarly analysis. Well, what a small group of European scholars did between 1995 and 2000 is to actually question all of that. 
and they came to the conclusion that in fact a massacre is not an irrational act. It is um, a very carefully planned event and they have great intent. And I, when that work began to be published, I took a great deal of notice of it and began to realise that that could help me to understand if, how and whether uh, there were massacres on the colonial frontier in Australia. So with that brief introduction, uh, I want to now turn to the map and try and give some little explanation of how it works. Um, I am not known for my technical proficiency. I, um, I rely on uh, my, my research team, which includes people like an e-systems architect and, and, uh, and digital cartographers and things like that. So let's see how we can go. All right, let's um, get to the front here. Okay, let's see what we can find. Okay, you'll see that when you get onto the website, um, there's a, a little menu across the top, the home page, which we're on now, and now uh, I'll click on to the introduction um, and, and when I work through this, I'll give you how we've uh, developed a methodology to look at evidence for Frontier Massacre, and then I'll show you how that methodology works with a couple of examples, and uh, then I think I will have run out of time and I'm ready, I'll be ready for questions. Okay, so the aim of the map was really to uh, provide an Australia-wide understanding of colonial Frontier Massacres, uh, set out the methodology, uh, describe the cartography, which is a technical question, but there's lots of tech heads in the audience who will know about that, uh, give you a couple of examples and move into the preliminary findings so far. I must say that we will never have every known frontier massacre on the map. It is an indicative map of what happened rather than a definitive map. So if there are sites there that you, you think there should be sites there, um, come and talk to me or uh, fill out the, um, the um, con uh, questions thing at the end um, and uh, we'll see what we can do. Okay, so I've just pointed out that this, we're in stage three, it's gone up in November last year and the fourth stage is in preparation and we expect it to finish by the end of 2020. Um, we will have run out of money uh, and we're all a bit exhausted. We need to be moving on to other projects. Um, and that we think we'll be ending up with more than 400 sites. I think that there's probably seven or 800 sites really, but 400 I think makes the case. All right, the first thing, let's start with the definition of a colonial frontier massacre. It is uh, defined as the deliberate and unlawful killing of six or more defenceless, I would say undefended, but the team thought defenceless would be better, uh, in one operation. Why did we choose six? Well, for two reasons. One, we looked at the international work on massacre, and they, the international scholars say really anywhere between one and ten. But we just, we settled on six because uh, most of the massacres usually take place at Aboriginal campsites. And the basic uh, Aboriginal campsite is usually an extended family of about 20 people. You kill six people in one go, that's 30%, that group is never going to be the same again. They can't replace themselves so quickly. They are immediately vulnerable to further instant further attack. They are vulnerable to disease because they're not able to collect food and perform ceremonial and reproduce in the same way that they had before. So it's, a massacre is a pretty devastating um, uh, episode uh, in, in, in the life of, of, a, of an Aboriginal hearth site community. Of course, some groups are in larger, uh, some Aboriginal groups camp in larger campsites. And as I go on, 
I'll point out how some of the massacres take place, and they're certainly of much larger Aboriginal groups. But we start, we, we, we arrived at that, and we were very much assisted in arriving at that definition by the Native American scholar Barbara Mann, who considers the, cons the killing of six undefended Indigenous people from a house group of 20 as a fractal massacre, one that is destroying the whole basis of that particular group. So that's very important to remember. From the uh, international work on massacre, we developed the following characteristics. It's, uh, it usually takes place in reprisal for an Aboriginal killing of a colonist, although that colonist is killed because they have usually abducted an Aboriginal woman. So it's usually as the result of a colonist initiating a practice which is absolutely outside of Aboriginal practice. But what is recorded in the literature, of course, is the Aboriginal killing of the colonist or the taking of livestock or whatever. So it's all seen from a colonial perspective, not from the Aboriginal perspective. Secondly, it's a planned event. They need, the perpetrators need to collect the weapons they're going to use to kill people. Uh, they must make sure they've got enough ammunition. They might be taking cutlasses, they might be taking uh, uh, brown vest muskets, they might have some pistols. It depends on the historical period. The brown vest musket is in widespread use across the colonial frontier in Australia right up until 1860. It is the key weapon. And if other historians say, oh, you know, it was hard to load, had powder in it, and, you know, it often misfired and the pan didn't work and so on, they certainly managed to kill a lot of Aboriginal people. Don't fall for that. It takes place in secret. This is a critical characteristic of, front of massacre generally. It's a planned event. No one, it is a completely illegal event. Why would you tell people you're going to do it? The perpetrators are sworn to secrecy and no witnesses are planned to be present. That is, the witnesses who are the victims are, are meant to be all killed. This doesn't always happen and we've got many stories of how little children survive. Their, their mothers hide them in a log or put them out of sight. They see everything that's going on. They miss being killed. So they are witnesses but they cannot speak at the time for fear that they will be killed by the perpetrators. And secondly, of course, we know that until 1875 in New South Wales, Aboriginal people could not present evidence in court. So the perpetrators have got a lot going for them. So it takes place in secret. Sometimes, however, there is something gets out in the press. And this is where Trove comes in, is very helpful. Somebody might write a letter to a friend in a, in a very anonymous way, or something happened uh, down, uh, down over there, 10 miles down the road, we think Aboriginal people were killed. There'll be instant denial. The perpetrators will come out and say, nothing happened. And I'll give you an example of that very shortly. The assassins and the victims often know each other. This is. It's a very intimate event. Not in every case, but often that is the case. It's where colonists have arrived in an area to take the land. They do meet the Aboriginal people living there. And then the relations break down and that's when the massacre happens. So they know where the Aboriginal people are camped. They know the names of some of them, if not all of them. So they're killing people that they know. So this, again, is something, as Australians, we have to understand. The purpose is to force them into submission or to eradicate them entirely. And some of the big massacres is about eradication. It is generally confined, a massacre, to a particular geographical space, a campsite uh, on the river, uh, in a rock ledge or whatever. And it takes place over a limited time period. That's certainly the case in the 19th century, but as we move into the 20th century and look at some of the massacres in the 1920s, such as Forest River, uh, Coniston in 1928, 
we find it takes place over a period of weeks and the Aboriginal people are driven forward and then they might kill people and then the perpetrators go back and get fresh ammunition, fresh horses, they'll come back and have another go. Uh, Coniston took place over a period of weeks and the Walpuri were driven out of their country and many of them have never returned. So that is a, a really frightening uh, account. Uh, so this geographical space is certainly there, say, in colonial Tasmania and Victoria, parts of Queensland um, and South Australia, but less so, I think, in parts of the Northern Territory and, and in the Kimberley. And I'll talk about that. Uh, I've talked about those that take place over a wide area over several weeks. The important thing is that no matter when the massacre took place, a code of silence is imposed, which makes detection difficult. And this is where the historian has to really get into the sources and try and work out fact from fiction. And as historians, we're usually trained to consider this, the evidence or the sources that appear closest to the event to give those sources uh, the greatest status. What I've learned through massacre, it's usually the later evidence that gives you a better idea of what happened. So it's a bit like turning a lot of your historical training on its head. And um, I think that's been one of the hardest things for me to come to terms with. And so the most reliable evidence of massacre is often provided by the witnesses, perpetrators and survivors long after the event when they're no longer threatened uh, with, with arrest or reprisal. Okay, it's, uh, we've, uh, the project has worked very hard to collect published evidence or evidence that's readily accessible, either online or in books or newspapers. And again, Trove has been an incredibly important source uh, of evidence of massacre. Uh, we wanted to get, we wanted to use sources that the person using the map or accessing the map could use themselves, could go and find themselves. If they didn't believe what we've put on the screen, on the map, then they can go and read the sources themselves and, and uh, they might end up with a different interpretation. We, we did not want... We wanted to encourage people to use the sources, to go and investigate themselves and see what we'd found. And so we've just listed the kinds of sources that we've generally used. They are quite, there's the, you know, the very conventional sources like Historical Records of Australia, which is now online at last, thank goodness. Um, but we've also used another wide array of travel guides and people visiting Queensland, for example, will say, oh, I visited this town and met the perpetrators coming back from a massacre. And you go, oh, okay. Um, and so you've got something to chase up. Uh, we've also got many published accounts from Aboriginal people. Interviews, as soon as the tape recorder was invented or arrived in Australia, anthropologists were out there interviewing Aboriginal people. Many of them have been published uh, in articles, books, journals, all kinds of things. Aboriginal published, published Aboriginal sources are much richer than we realise, and they're really fantastic. And, of course, there's important evidence that have appeared before uh, la Aboriginal land commissioners and native title tribunals. So the array of Aboriginal evidence is becoming greater by the day. We also know that Aboriginal people have used their own forms of evidence, like the Aboriginal massacre paintings from the Kimberley are an incredibly rich source because the way they tell the stories of how the massacres happened. And that, that's very important as well. So a typical... Oh, there's not really a typical massacre, but often there's a little story in a newspaper and on Trove. And it gives you, might give you a name, but it might give you a place. It's something to follow up in other kinds of sources. It's not to say we haven't used archival sources, but in many cases the archival sources are official sources and they're about covering up. Uh, and the, the sources for the Kimberley massacres, for example, uh, largely 
carried out by joint operations with settlers and police. Um, the police have to write a report. The report says we went, we, you know, we collected 500 rounds of ammunition, we went out on a patrol, we came back and we didn't have any ammunition left. But sometimes the odd police person or the odd settler might keep a diary. We went out, there were eight of us in the group, there were four police, four of us. Uh, we made sure we had fresh horses, we were out for two weeks. We, arrived, we shot down two Aboriginal camps. Uh, in the first one, well, probably about 50, uh, give or take. Uh, we were uh, particularly looking for a particular Aboriginal guy, warrior, um, and uh, not sure that we got him, so we went to the next camp. And we think we got him in the next camp, and we shot a lot of women and children there. And it's that kind of evidence that you've got to work with. And then you think, well, exactly where was that camp? You know, and so it, it's, uh, it, takes some t it takes a long time. We've got a lot of unfinished uh, work uh, sitting back there because we can't actually identify where it took place. Or we haven't got a, uh, we've got others where there's not a clear date. We like to have at least a year, you know, 1897, not, we've got a couple where we've had to say the 1890s in the hope that someone will contact us and say that happened in 1896. We do a lot of background reading about when that part of the Kimberley was opened up. Who were the key people who opened up the Kimberley? What were they doing at any one point? When did the police parties arrive? We can do a lot of background work for context and that takes time too. We've got a wonderful historian, Chris Owen, working with us now, who's based in Perth, but has written some wonderful work on the Kimberley. There's been some other wonderful researchers in the Kimberley in the 1980s and 1990s who have been incredibly generous in giving, them, giving us all their research too. So it's an endless jigsaw puzzle, putting things together. We also established a, uh, a typology, so what we're looking for for basic information, which I discovered was necessary if it's going to end up on a map. I had to learn all, all about um, uh, various uh, ways of collecting data. You just couldn't put it in, a, on, you know, in the way that I used to collect data. I can't do that anymore. As a historian, I have to behave like a social scientist. It's been very painful. Um, <laughs> So, and I have to do things like the weapons, and we, people have written to us about the weapons, and we need to be more upfront of exactly describing the weapons that we used. There's a lot of weapons historians around the world who have been very anxious to help us there. So, okay. And then we've got into the cartography area about um, the full collection of sites is stored, blah, 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 points showing massacre, blah, blah, blah. So we've got... Um, uh, and one of the other points I'd like to make is that we're not, we do not have on the map, when we click on a dot, you don't get the actual site. If, for example, a massacre had taken place in the National Library of Australia, you will not get the National Library of Australia appearing on the map. It will show the whole surrounding area, probably the whole of Lake Burley Griffin, the suburb of Parks, and possibly going into Griffith simply because Aboriginal people, uh, well, there are two reasons. First is that many of the very well-known sites have been desecrated. Aboriginal people don't want more of that desecration to continue. So giving a general idea of the site rather than the actual site is much better. Secondly, Aboriginal, for many Aboriginal communities, a known site is a sacred site. There could be human remains there, uh, and they want those remains to be respected. So I'd like to hope that the people using the map are not going to rush out and say, I want to find that site and dig and find something and see if I can find a bone. Australians actually don't have a very good reputation for respecting sites. We know that about Uluru. There's a sense that it's our country, we can do anything we like to it. I would like to hope that we'll start taking a different approach and understanding and respecting sites that are there, 
And even if you're not going to be able to find a bone, um, that you're not going to go around digging it up or doing other things to it. So learning this project is much about learning respect. So I'll just give you a couple of preliminary findings. Um, we found that in the early days, from the first massacre in 1794 in the Hawkesbury up to 1826, both in Tasmania and in New South Wales, the massacres were all carried out on foot. Horses were not widely used in early colonial Australia. They weren't widely available. And they're usually carried out as a nighttime attack on an Aboriginal camp. After 1827 in New South Wales and the other colonies apart from Tasmania, there, um, the horse, the horse is king. The horse is the way in which the perpetrators get to a site, uh, get to a place where they're going to carry it out. We have no examples of them being carried out from, uh, from vehicles. Uh, they're carried out on horseback. And as the weapons in the 19th century improve, uh, they're designed to be used, uh, be fired from horseback and uh, th those weapons change uh, in, in time. And I think that's important to know. Uh, once the horse is used, um, you can get probably more people in uh, a group of perpetrators. Uh, in Tasmania, you might get a, a group on foot that could be you know, between 10 and 20 people. Once you've got horses, you can get a group of 20 people on horseback can inflict a lot of damage. So, okay, so just briefly, uh, we've got 311 on the map at the moment, 37 for Tasmania, Victoria 54, 83 in New South Wales, Queensland 42, obviously very under-researched, South Australia 44, uh, and that includes sites in the NT. We have to remember, you learn your history. Uh, when the Northern Territory was opened up, in the 1860s, it was, of course, part of South Australia. So when I say there are only six in the Northern Territory, most of those would be for what we call South Australia. And we've now got 34 in the West. Uh, the stage four will have t at least twice that number. And the same for the Northern Territory. We think we'll end up with probably nearly 100 in Western Australia and nearly 100 in the Northern Territory and probably nearly 100 in Queensland. So the northern part of Australia is the real story of Frontier Massacre. Okay, let's get down to business and get back to the map. Okay. I just want to give you a couple of examples of how the map works. It's interesting looking at the, um, the massacres in Victoria. There many more than we thought and we've had in quite a considerable number of people from Victoria um, contacting us uh, uh, since the stage one went up uh, with more information. Uh, we knew that there were, we did have a lot of information about massacres in, the, in, um, in Gippsland, but we're now getting more right up along the border with New South Wales, more along the Murray, which is understandable because it's a major watercourse. But you'll notice that there's virtually very few along the Darling River. It's not because they didn't happen. It's because we don't have strong enough evidence to meet the criteria to get onto the map. We have a lot in north, northeastern New South Wales, southern Queensland. I'm still trying to fill in this area here. Uh, you can see there's a lot in the Kimberley. I think we may have, we've got about 20 more to put in from the Kimberley and there's more from the southwest to go in. South Australia, probably a few more around here. So I just wanted to give you a couple of examples of how we've been working out with massacres. And I'd like to start with this one in Queensland called Battle Camp, which took place We've actually got a day on the 5th of November, 1873, in the early morning. That's important with these people. Okay, so that's when you click on. Ah, why are the sites all in, the Aboriginal sites are all in yellow? Uh, Aboriginal people that we contacted, both at IATSIS 
and various uh, Aboriginal study programs and centres in Australian universities said yellow was the best colour to use. We wanted red, of course, um, but no. Uh, so yellow is the colour. So, sorry, I'll get back to that. Let me just show. Okay, this is um, this is Battle Camp. It's on the it's on the on the road, the track between Cooktown and Laura, where which was uh, where gold was found early uh, in 1873, uh, and the uh, uh, it was immediately opened up, and uh, miners caught a ship from Brisbane up to Cooktown and wanted to set off along the Palmer River uh, over Hillendale to uh, get to Laura where the, um, where the gold mine was. I, Laura actually operated for about 30 years, but it was the first five years where the biggest payload happened. Okay. Uh, what we find is that uh, a shipload of miners arrived uh, in Cooktown and uh, the local magistrate was very worried about letting this group. I think there were about 40 or 50 in the group, but I haven't got an actual number. Uh, but uh, very quickly, they, there was enough of them to put pressure on the magistrate to say, we're going right away. We're not going to wait until you can say it's safe for us to go. We're going now. So the two ma there were uh, a magistrate uh, and another senior uh, officer there, and so they found themselves having to lead this party of, uh, of miners on the road uh, to the Palmer River goldfield, uh, and it took about two weeks to get there. And it's only later that you realise they're also joined by a detachment of native police. And um, the massacre uh, took place uh, at a lagoon early one morning. How do we know? Well, somebody in that group, unnamed, writes a little piece, well, an article in the Brisbane Telegraph on the 22nd of January, 1874, a couple of months later. So let's have a look at the article. Isn't Trove wonderful? You just click and there it is. Now, when you're out there in the bush and you just click and you just, you know, you're right into it. Here it is, the Palmer. So there's, it's dated the 17th of November. It's a sort of letter. My dear friend, we arrived here at the Palmer all well yesterday and so on. We left the Endeavour River, Cooktown, on the 30th of October, 31st of October and uh, some came 10 miles over broken granite country, camped at a creek, blah, 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 which we christened after one of the black boys. Isn't that wonderful? In other words, one of the guys in the native police. You really have to learn, you know, to read. It took us weeks to understand this. When 15 miles and were joined by the police, surveyors and commissioner, um, mustered about 110 souls altogether, the party gets bigger. And only three, three and a half horses, I don't know what the half horse was, <laughs> camped on Oakey Creek, went fishing and shooting, plenty of water, a tributary of the Johnston River, running southeast, camped next to So it's a kind of running commentary of a, of a diary. November the 2nd went up Oakey Creek, heavy travelling, camped on a branch, and so on. So it's quite an intimate account. Uh, and then November 3, started over the spur of the range, running east, came to Normanby River, 15 miles, started, meaning startled a mob of blacks, um, shot several, um, and it goes on. And then the next morning, they decide to attack the camp at dawn and kill a number of Aboriginal people. So this is reported in the Brisbane Telegraph. So... Uh, it's raised in the Queensland Parliament. What's going on here? Um, not even the Queensland Parliament was very happy about this it, because it then goes into the Melbourne press. It'll be it was reproduced in the Argus and then picked up in the Adelaide Advertiser and before you know it, it's spread across Australia. Massacre, Battle Camp Creek, uh, you know. So the Queensland Parliament, uh, the Premier, uh, authorises uh, that there will be an inquiry and uh, sends a magistrate to 
uh, Cooktown to, uh, to follow out this group, out to Laura and interview people. The magistrate interviewed 15 people, he, uh, minors, he named them, uh, and they all said, nothing happened, nothing. No, no, this is, this, no, this is a, a fabrication. This is a made-up story. This story in the Brisbane Telegraph, it didn't happen. Nothing happened. It was very interesting that the magistrate did not interview the other magistrate or the chief engineer or anyone from the native police. So he's got, he lists the names. So the whole story dies. And then... Um, uh, so we have to, you know, fast forward uh, about 20, in 1920, in 1922, uh, Robert Logan Jack, who was a historian, local historian in Queensland, included an account of the massacre by Billy Webb, one of the 16 miners interviewed by the magistrate, interviewed by Hamilton, the magistrate. Webb recounted that on the 5th of November, a large group of warriors approached the party and the men on horseback shot at them until they ran away. And then in 1937, this is considerably later again, another miner, J.J. Hogg, who'd also been interviewed by Magistrate Hamilton way back then in the 1870s, prepared his account of the massacre and published it in 1937. He said that the leaders of the party surprised a large encampment of Aboriginal people preparing their breakfast and shot them all. The journal of a member of the party was later placed in the John Oxley Library, and, this was, and the journal said, November the 3rd, and so on, it goes on. Surprise, the blacks surprised us, then we surprised them the next day. So this massacre, the information comes out literally decades later. It's very hard for historians to come to terms with this because normally I would have thought the magistrate's report, if he didn't get all the information then, what's going on? The fact that the magistrate did not interview the other magistrate, did not interview any of the senior officers, did not interview any of the officers leading that native police detachment, we have to ask why. These miners were ordinary men and they all said nothing happened. So it's interesting, however, that there is this need to tell, even if it's decades later. So the story obviously never went away and it is clear that something happened. So that's a, an example of where uh, the initial story appearing in Trove gave us something to follow up. And uh, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's extraordinary in that way. Let me give you another, just hang on a second, just a couple of others to indicate what happened. Okay, let's go back to the map. Um, let's, uh, let's see if I can find the Forest River. Is this in here? <coughs> Oh, well, look at Mola Bluff. That's a good one. Mola Bluff took place uh, in September, uh, between in September 1916. It's where a group of Aboriginal people were massacred by a police party uh, as a result um, uh, of a, of a I think a prospector being killed because he'd um, run off with an Aboriginal woman for the wrong reasons. So uh, we've got the full story. It's a, it's a, a, a long situation. It's, uh, and this is largely information that has come from the Aboriginal community because they felt the story that had been recorded in the police records was completely wrong. So they made a film about it called Mola Bluff. And the film was made about 10 years ago and it's been shown a lot around universities and so on. And it's been made by the Aboriginal people themselves where they interviewed uh, the people and they reconstruct what actually happened. So this is a wonderful story that, that is getting on the map. One of complete denial by the perpetrators. This is one where witnesses uh, speak out later. It becomes a very important story in the local Aboriginal community and so powerful that they make a film. So that's, that's a wonderful example of where you get 
Aboriginal evidence that has been passed down over the generations. So let me go back. Just one uh, final um, example, and um, perhaps I'll go to one of the one of the ones in Tasmania, which I was hauled over the coals for, um, which is this one. Okay, this is called the Elizabeth River, and it, um, it's uh, an alleged uh, incident took place there on the 12th of April, 1827, at dawn, and so. Let's have a look at these. Look at the what it says. Uh, so again, Trove comes to the rescue. These are Tasmanian newspapers. The um, the Colonial Times reported that three weeks earlier, two uh, shepherds really uh, of the, of a settler at the Elizabeth River had been killed by a party of Aborigines led by the notorious Black Tom Kikatapola. A new biography is coming out any moment of him is fabulous. Anyway, several persons assisted by a small party of soldiers made immediate pursuit um, and then that's it. That's all you get. That's all you get. Uh, immediate pursuit. Uh, then there's another story that appears in, uh, in the other Hobart newspaper, the Colonial Times, and it says that... Oh, sorry, the Hobart Town Gazette. And it says that um, uh, it's... Uh, a story written by uh, the leading uh, uh, military soldier that was out there and how there was only half a dozen soldiers and they were confronted by this huge number of Aboriginal warriors bristling with spears and but the soldiers were able to get away by hiding behind trees and negotiating their way out. Uh, but they managed also apparently to find the Aboriginal camp and bring back all these spears and other, other trophies. And then there's another letter, a letter that appears a week later saying, this story is completely fabricated but gives no, no further information. So it just sits like that. And then uh, my attention was drawn to a journal uh, that was... Um, uh, in 2000, um, a published memoir of the settler James George, James George, who was a young man at the time, recorded the incident in the following way. Having seen their fires in a gully near the river, some score of armed men, constables, soldiers, civilians and prisoners, or assigned servants who fell in with the natives when they were going to their breakfast. You know, a dawn raid. They fired volley after volley among the black fellows and reported killing some to school. That's published, that was published by the local historical society in about, when was it, 2002, but it's based on his memoir that he'd written um, some years before. Some member of the family found it. So that, of course, is gold. You don't always get that information. So this sort of incident where they're being attacked by Aboriginal people, in fact, it's the, this armed party who are attacking the Aborigines in their camp at dawn. No wonder they're coming back with all of these um, spears and trophies and other things like that. So that's a, you know, that, just finding that, that, that diary that had been published was, was wonderful for me. That, that was great. And we do have a, a sense of the site, which is probably, we think, around that, that dam at the moment. Uh, I was at a conference earlier today talking about water and how so many of the sites, possible sites, where Aboriginal people may have been killed have been turned into dams or lagoons or reservoirs, a lot along the Murray, a lot along the rivers going from Victoria, something we need to explore a lot more. And I'm hoping that the data on the map uh, can help us uh, to do that. Okay, I've given you a couple of examples of how the map works. I should wrap up now and um, see what we can draw some conclusions. Okay, so let's go back to the introduction. Oh, I can just give you an idea. The map is very good, you know, that's fine. But as a historian, I love the timeline because it lists everyone in chronological order. <laughs> and there it all is. And for me, 
that is just fabulous. So along by date, and if I have to make any changes, I can. Uh, the changes don't appear immediately. Let's go back to the introduction and look at some of the preliminary findings to date. And the findings have changed a little bit uh, with, with each stage. So these are only preliminary findings. One's about the numbers and so on. What we found that, um, who were the perpetrators? Well, I began the project thinking that most of the perpetrators were probably local settlers and their, and their employees, the shepherds, so on. Uh, at Mile Creek, for example, uh, it was an opportunity massacre led by a local settler and surrounding stockmen. But what we're beginning to find is the police, whether they're native police or mounted colonial police or whatever, <coughs> sorry, or whatever are, um, are, are more likely to be there. The, arm, the, the arms of the state, uh, particularly as time moves on, particularly as we move from the late 19th century into the 20th century, the police, the arms of the state are more likely to be involved than I realised. They're often operating what I call in a joint operation where the settlers and the police are working together. So this is not something that the state did not know about. I think the state is certainly involved, very much involved in the, in the massacres in the first 20 and 30 years. Uh, they see themselves as patrolling the frontiers of the, of the early settlements and they're British uh, soldiers who are largely out there. From the mid-1820s, uh, the, the British soldiers are employed as mounted police, um, which are paid for, the horses and equipment paid for by the colonial government. And then after, uh, I think the last time we've got actual soldiers from a British regiment um, working on the frontier is in southern Queensland in 1841. That particular British regiment, the 99th Regiment, was then sent to New Zealand and fought in the New Zealand wars of the mid-1840s. They come back to Australia. They're um, deployed to Tasmania, uh, largely to guard the convicts, but they're also sent to Melbourne to quell the riots following Eureka stockade in 1854. There's some sent over to Perth where there's some uh, riots going on there. Uh, so these British regiments have a role uh, in many of these frontier massacres up to uh, the early 1850s. So again, that's a lot of new work that needs to be done. Nobody's really sussed that out. I do know that the first genuine war memorial in Australia is in Hobart, erected in 1850 by the soldiers in that 99th Regiment uh, in honour of their comrades who fell in the New Zealand wars. So we've got connections with massacre, frontier massacres and the New Zealand wars. That's got to be understood. Uh, we also know in the second lot of New Zealand wars in the 1860s, uh, the regiments are starting to deploy some tactics that the perpetrators do in massacres on the Australian colonial frontier. Uh, they're on horses and they're in what they call flying columns. But we can see these are colonial wars and the same strategies are being used on the colonial frontier right across the British Empire. So what is happening in Australia is not unique to Australia. It is part of gaining an empire and conquering an empire and gaining land. So we have to look more broadly at what a map like this can tell us. Who the perpetrators were, how the, how the Aboriginal people were killed. We also have 12 um, uh, sites of where Aboriginal people have uh, killed colonists, um, which is also important. And uh, all of those um, incidents have been well and truly written up in many, many books and so on. I'll just uh, get back to the map. We've also got a massacre of, uh, an Aboriginal massacre of Macassans uh, in up here, this little 
green triangle is where uh, they killed a group of Macassans who broke some protocols. So this is a frontier war. It lasted for a very long period of time. It is the story of colonial Australia and massacre is a key feature of those wars. The final question, how, what percentage of Aboriginal people estimated killed did the, were, what part did massacre play? I can only give examples from Victoria and Tasmania. And in, in Victoria, for example, we think that the massacres were responsible for 60% of the reported deaths of Aboriginal people on the frontier. In Tasmania, it's closer to 70%. So massacre is a critically important strategy. It's quick, um, it's well planned, and you get a result. I think I'll stop there. Thank you.